Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello! We're delighted to be back and we're just thrilled to see the great response that we had for the last episode. Thank you so much for all of the people who've reached out and liked our stuff on social media. Yeah, it's just been really lovely to hear from people and to be back in the swing of things and to be making Risking Enchantment episodes again. Just before we start, I thought it might be a good opportunity to remind people again that we have a newsletter that we send out if you want to get an email with the latest Risking Enchantment episode. Maybe in the coming months, some extra information and tidbits. We'll see what I can make happen. But also to just follow us on social media. I'm making a big effort to post even more and to interact even more online. So if you follow us at Risking Enchantment Podcast and to join the newsletter, visit www.rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. And at the bottom of the page, there's a really nice, simple subscription form to fill in. And we'll just send you a nice email whenever we have a new episode, such as this episode. (laughs) But now that we have closed out our business from the last episode, which was all about feasting, we are now thoroughly ready to enter into Lent. Isn't that right, Phoebe? Oh, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we're not alone in feeling like this is a very Lenty Lent this year. We've had to give up a lot of stuff already, and we've been giving it up for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but there was a, a sense for me that it was actually nice to enter into Lent and to consciously give things up and to consciously enter into this time of reflection and drawing closer to God and just taking that time. So I'm actually kind of pleased to be in this season. Yeah, it's nice to have a different season as well. Mm -hmm. Going to. It breaks up the year. (laughs) (laughs) What you needed. So yeah, we, we were thinking about what would be a good Lenten topic to talk about. And since it is a time of reflection, and I think it is a really good opportunity to do some kind of more painful reflection and and appraisals of the ways that we interact with the people in our lives, with God, with ourselves and our, our kind of motives and aims for life and where God is leading us in our lives. And because of that, we, we picked this particular topic, which the topic for this episode is martyrdom and moral dilemma and the graces and virtues that go into martyrdom but also the temptations which have to be overcome to truly enter into martyrdom. And also the journey that it doesn't become one glorious act but there are a lot of decisions that are made along the way. Yeah, that the that a martyr is someone who has been preparing for martyrship for their lives in the ways that they have drawn closer to God and God's will. And the reason this topic presented itself to us, we recognise it's it's quite a nuanced topic. We want to make sure that we're doing a good job of not simplifying things or being too dismissive, let's say, of the amazing sacrifice of martyrs. But it was just a topic that presented itself to us because we came across, or at least I came across, two texts in fairly quick succession which were reflecting on this theme. Yeah, and I think it's really important to say that there is such a glory to martyrdom and that it is called the crown of the martyrs for a reason. Yeah. But some of what we want to talk about in this episode is... Yeah, like the nuances behind that 
and some of the oversimplification that can go on. Um, you've got that great Flannery O'Connor quote of, she didn't think she could be a saint, but she thought she could be a martyr if you killed her quick. Yeah, I love that line. It's one that comes back to me all the time. And I think it really encapsulates something that we really want to talk about, which is that sense that it's actually a line from Hamilton, which is dying is easy, living is harder. That sense that obviously I in no way want to diminish the absolute astounding sacrifice of martyrs but that there's that sense that like martyrdom can almost be seen as an easy out that you can sort of get out of jail free if you just if you just have this one moment of courage when they come to kill you if you can just be brave for that one moment then you get to be a saint forever (laughs) and how that's not really how god works in our lives and also that's not that sort of treating martyrdom as an end in and of itself rather than the result of dedicating your life to the will of god yeah whereas i think a lot of what we're called to in this lent Mm. is to figure out ways that we can make better decisions that would help us make that final act of courage if we are called to it Yes, and also to be brave enough to live a life that doesn't call us to martyrdom and may call us to live a life of sacrifice for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah, so to get to the two texts that we want to talk about, we begin with a opera, of all things, (laughs) and I think we referenced this opera when we watched it as one of the things we were enjoying at the moment. Our friend Father Connor noted that this opera, which is, it's called Dialogue des Carmelites, um, or Dialogue of the Carmelites. We'll probably just call it Dialogue from now on. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's written by Poulenc, um, and its its words were written by Georges Bernanos, who obviously is the author of Diary of a Country Priest and many other novels. And this this opera, as you can guess from the title, is centred on the martyr story. It's the martyrs of Compagnie, who were a group of Carmelite nuns who were guillotined uh, about 10 days before the execution of Robespierre, so coming at the very end of the French Revolution. And so this opera was being shown, the Met Opera, I think I've mentioned this as well, that they are doing um, sort of 24-hour screenings. So if you catch them on any kind of given night of the week, you can check out which opera that they're showing. So our friend Father Connor organised an online group viewing of this opera. And it was one of those things where you, you look at an opera, it's three hours long, and it's it, for us it was being shown in the middle of the day, and you're like, are we really going to miss a whole day's sunlight on this opera? A whole Saturday <laughs> afternoon in winter. Yeah. <laughs> but we did, and it was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really, really powerful. There's a couple of different recordings of it, and I think it was one of the newest recordings of it. It was really powerful, and it was a beautiful reflection on martyrdom and the history around that moment. And what it means to live out a virtuous life before that. Yeah, exactly. And then the second text is Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot, uh, which is... Oh, Rachel's talking about T.S. Eliot. What a surprise. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, I I know. It's a bit of a cliche for me. And I think I've mentioned this as well before, which is that my dad always quotes the line when we're coming to winter of golden October declines into sombre November and the apples were gathered and stored and the land became brown sharp points of death in a waste of water and mud. And this is a line that's been rattling around in my head for years and years because my dad loves it so much. And I finally took the time to read it cover to cover and again, was not disappointed, had a really wonderful experience and of course the play is about the martyrdom of St Thomas Becket and so again provides this really human and nuanced and complex 
insight into the mind of a person in the run-up to their martyrdom. Yeah, and it's also written in, like, semi-poetry form in a play. Yeah. Which is really interesting and really, really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought this was my one chance to get Phoebe to read a T.S. Eliot work. <laughs> well, she succeeded. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. It was so good. Yeah. And really profound. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I don't think it's really what you expect from... If you know T.S. Eliot as, like, a fairly dense, poetic writer that needs a lot of parsing when you're reading them and that sort of modernist poetry style which has a lot of intertextual references I don't think that's quite what like murder in the cathedral is not quite what you expect it is a much more straightforward self-contained text yeah I will say the notes in the copy that Rachel gave me were very useful to just kind of figure out some of the references and some of the history, particularly because you don't have the actual play setting to give you the context otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. My edition is a Faber edition, so I expect that those notes are still accessible to people. But I think it's just in terms of being a single unit of story and one that's not too oblique in the way that it, it tries to approach a topic. It is telling a story in a very, like... Relatively straightforward way. Pretty much, yeah. I think it's a really great starting point for T.S. Eliot. And so, yeah, these two texts, St. Thomas Beckett and The Martyrs of Compagnie, just offer these really nuanced looks at what it takes to be a martyr um, and how it isn't just the case of, I couldn't be a saint, but I could be a martyr if they killed me quick. Like, Yeah, it, and I think we could also go the other way and think that the glory of martyrdom is so far away from us that we can never achieve it. Yeah. And I think these both kind of really put it in its context between those two extremes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes into the the oversimplification that we mentioned a little bit earlier. I think in a world that is, I think, constantly grasping for meaning, I think there's also a slight danger in kind of over-romancing martyrdom in terms of being so ready to, to kind of wish that you had the opportunity to lay your life down in this very dramatic, violent fashion that would go down in history, you know? And therefore overlook what you are being called to sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is not to say that none of us will be called to martyrdom. And I am very aware that still today there are Christians and Catholics throughout the world who do face this as a very literal reality. And I would never want to undermine that. But that equally, most of us will not be called to martyrdom. And how do we approach obeying God's will in a way that is neither afraid of martyrdom, but also not afraid of living so much that you would prefer martyrdom? Yeah, I think it's, we'll come to it a bit later, but there's a really important point in the dialogue that points out that martyrdom is a reward and something that's given, which is also actually discussed in Murder in the Cathedral, that it's something that's given, not something that can be sought after for its own sake. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it is relevant to our modern day, I think, when we're looking at how to lay our lives down for Christ, how to commit to a cause in a very real way, and how to live out the call to die to self on a regular basis. So I think what we'll do is we'll give a slight, I know we've kind of named and given like an insight into both of the texts, but I think what, what we'll do is offer a summary. We did discuss this before about whether there's a need for like spoiler alerts. I think the fact that they're both performance related texts means that 
knowing the story is not experiencing the story. <laughs> yeah, you actually have to know the story of St. Thomas Beckett mm-hmm. to understand the play. Yeah. Rather than the other way around. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So I think we're just going to be going and giving a full overview of both texts. And hopefully, um, I don't know whether there's that many people putting on performances of Murder in the Cathedral. It would be amazing if there were. If you find any, send us a link. <laughs> um, but like we said, you can keep an eye out for the Met online. They may be showing the Dialogue des Carmelites again. So yeah, just uh, hopefully people will get an opportunity to encounter the stories for themselves. But to give a kind of overview so that you'll understand the characters and plot points that we're talking about. I'll start with the the dialogue. So this opera, like I mentioned, was written by Poulenc. It, it came out in 1957 in France, which obviously has that background of just coming out of the Second World War. So I think it's just interesting that it's coming out of this one reign of terror and reflecting on another reign of terror. So it's set during the French Revolution and follows... The main character, who is called Blanche de la Force, who is a fictional character. So these are based on real people and real martyrs who were executed. But uh, several of the named characters within it are fictionalised. And it follows Blanche de la Force, who is an aristocrat and a beautiful young woman, but who is very afraid of the world and I think particularly in the context of the revolution but I think in general is just very timid and fearful of the world and so she enters the convent because she has a true sense of piety and wants to draw closer to God but also out of a real sense of fear and wanting to withdraw from the world and the first act kind of centers on her um, interview with the mother superior and her entering into the convent and at the end of act one the mother superior who is this character of great piety and a very clear thinking religious figure in this community of nuns and Blanche is called to her deathbed as she is dying and witnesses what is quite a traumatizing death and um, the mother superior essentially experiences this dark night of the soul as she is dying. She feels abandoned by God. I believe she even like blasphemes. It's a very difficult and painful death for someone who has lived a very religious and pious life. And there is that real sense of the the people who witness to it being very shaken by this. But it's followed by a reflection by one of the other nuns, Sister Constance, who she's always talking martyrdom. She really wants to, to, to die. But she's, she's also very full of life. She just is kind of brimming over in this way. But she has this reflection which says that perhaps her death was meant for another. There's this image of the cloakroom of being given the wrong coat and that maybe someone is given the wrong death in order to allow somebody else to have an easier death when they might have had a harder one. And then the following acts of the play move into much more about the uh, French Revolution. The nuns are kind of increasingly hemmed in and dictated to by the the members of the French Revolution. And so there's a kind of tussle that goes on between one of the mothers, Mother Maria, and the new Mother Superior. So Mother Maria is very anxious for them all to, to accept martyrdom and just say, well, this is it. They want to kill us. Let them kill us. And Mother Superior, which 
Phoebe has mentioned, is kind of reminding people that there is still service to do, that it is a reward, we cannot seek martyrdom, we just have to live out our lives as best we can. But while the Mother Superior is away, she's visiting someone, the troops come and demand that they give up their habits and accept regular clothes and move out of their space and become essentially lay citizens. And they accept this on the basis that they still want to serve people. But Mother Maria at that point instigates a vow of martyrdom that they would all vow that they are ready to be martyred within the coming days. And Blanche is too afraid of this and she runs away and she runs away from her community and abandons them. And following on from that the Mother Superior returns and kind of finds them with this vow and says I don't know whether what you did was right but I'll take the burden of it, I'll take this vow and then I'll leave you the glory if the martyrdom comes but you know, it's I'm I'm taking the burden of this vow to God from you and, and allowing it to be my burden. Um and then all of them but the nun who actually was the nun who instigated this vow in the first place, Mother Maria, they're all arrested and sent to be executed. And so as they're going up to their execution, Blanche returns to them and joins them and is executed among them and is executed bravely and has this braver and more courageous death than she might have expected given the way that she has approached life and it's kind of suggested that the mother superior who died in act one has given her the grace of this this bravery at death but the only one who doesn't get to experience it is the mother Maria who really wanted it and she has to learn to accept that she still has to live for service yeah absolutely it's such an interesting drama. Yeah, and the music is beautiful. Yeah, that final scene of the nuns going to their death, singing the Salve Regina, Yeah, is heart-wrenching. Because there's just this, like, intermittent crunch of the guillotine. And, yeah, it's really moving. I... I just thought I was really blown away by it and as you can see there's a lot of ins and outs to it but it is this sort of ongoing meditation on when to accept martyrdom when it's good to run away from martyrdom when it's bad to run away from martyrdom and what it means to live a life of prayer and service yeah definitely and then Phoebe do you want to take a sort of rundown of murder in the cathedral sure so, as you mentioned, it's the martyrdom of St. Thomas Becket, who died in the 12th century under the reign of Henry II, at a time when there was a lot of tension between the church and state in terms of their jurisdiction and whether the clergy fell under the laws of the realm and like what powers the church had. And St. Thomas has been in exile for seven years at the start of this play, and he's coming back to England to his people under a form of peace but not a full peace so he knows there's a high risk that he will die in doing this but he's also not coming back with like the full guarantee that there's a kill on sight order for him mm -hmm. and there is also very much a sense that his people have been abandoned without him and that he needs to go back to them and that he's been away long enough and he's settled his affairs in preparation for this. Yeah. And then through the play, in the first act, he faces four tempters. And the three are the three temptations of Christ, of food, friendship and power. Mm -hmm. But the fourth one is one that really takes him by surprise, which is the temptation to the glory of martyrdom. And it's kind of said that 
he's looking to be a glorious saint and look at how much good you could do if you throw down your life for this and you'll be remembered while the king will be forgotten and all of your enemies will wilt in hell (laughs) essentially and he's really challenged by that question of whether he's seeking to do a good act for the wrong reason which I think is something we're gonna go into yeah um and then in the second act the four knights who kill him come and there's a whole scene of the priests trying to hustle St. Thomas Beckett away and him making that decision to open the doors of the cathedral and not turn it into a fortress in the in a way that he possibly could have. It's not necessarily clear-cut either way. And then the four knights, after killing him, have this accusation against him matching the four temptations. And the fourth one is trying to accuse him of suicide, essentially, mm. that he threw his life away by opening the doors. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. It's really beautifully written as well. Really yeah. powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I really love it. I think it's such an interesting insight into that medieval world that I think it's very complex and I think that that's something that we're going to talk about as well that it's it's not just this very clear straightforward decision there's a lot of factors of who has the right jurisdiction and who is the right to excommunicate and whether there anything could have been done to prevent it but yeah there's a whole challenge of some of the English bishops being excommunicated and the knights demanding that St Thomas overwrite that decision but he's already had it verified by the Pope so he no longer has the authority to do that and his refusal to undermine his church by doing what he doesn't have the authority to do. Yeah so it's just a really interesting play I I would really recommend it and I think maybe we'll start with Murder in the Cathedral as our topic point and maybe just spend a little bit of time talking about this topic of the temptation to martyrdom for your own glory. Definitely, yeah. Which I think it's it's really interesting to see the balance of reflection that goes into this, that like, as you were saying, that the desire to do a good thing, but for the wrong reasons, and how we as Christians are actually called to make sure that our motivations match up to our goals. Yeah, and I think it is important to say at this juncture that that can become an over-scrupulosity of questioning your motives and allowing that to freeze any good action that you might have done because you're not sure whether you're doing it for the right reason. But there is also that necessity that we examine ourselves and question why we are doing something. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think maybe we should just quote a little bit from the play. Here's the tempter tempting St. Thomas. Save what you know already, ask nothing of me. But think, Thomas, think of glory after death. When king is dead, there's another king, and one more king is another reign. King is forgotten, when another shall come. Saint and martyr rule from the tomb. Think, Thomas, think of enemies dismayed, creeping in penance, frightened of a shade. Think of pilgrims standing in line before the flittering jewelled sarny from generation to generation, bending the knee in supplication. Think of the miracles by God's grace 
and think of your enemies in another place. And Thomas says, I have thought of these things. That's such a, like, frank admission. Yeah. Of that these are things I have thought of. Mm-hmm. These are temptations that I face. Yeah, exactly. Because he has this line which says, who are you tempting me with my own desires? Others have come temporal tempters with, with pleas and power at palpable price. What do you offer? What do you ask? And then he goes on to say, you offer only dreams to damnation. So good. I think he even brings up what you were saying about the, the real struggle that goes on in the soul to to find how to strike that right balance of motivation. Because I love the line he has, it's slightly earlier, but he says, but what is there to do? What is left to be done? Is there no enduring crown to be won? Almost that sense of like, it's almost too difficult to align your motives and your failings in the right order to still allow for the grace of God. Yeah, he's almost coming to that paralyzing point. And he Mm -hmm. questions, is there no way in my soul's sickness does not lead to damnation in pride. I well know that these temptations mean present vanity and future torment. Can sinful pride be driven out only by more sinful? Can I neither act nor suffer without perdition? It, it is that constant struggle in the human soul to both assess your own faults, but also to not paralyze yourself with these reflections and to to find that balance which allows you to submit to God's will. Yeah, and he does come back to that surrender to the will of God. Mm-hmm. That then just becomes an offering himself. Yeah, and I think he, he gets to a point of thinking clear. He says, now my way is clear, now the meaning plain. Temptation shall not come in this kind again. The last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. The natural vigour in the venial sin is the way in which our lives begin. I know that history at all times draws the strangest consequence from remotest cause. But for every evil, every sacrilege, crime, wrong, oppression, and the axe's edge, indifference, exploitation, you and you, and you must all be punished. So much you, I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. Now my good angel, whom God appoints to be my guardian, hover over the sword's point. And there is that real sense that it is ultimately to the will of God. Yeah. And that he doesn't need to fear doing the right thing if it leads to his martyrdom. Mm -hmm. Because if God wants him to become a martyr, he will become a martyr. And if God doesn't want him to become a martyr, he is trusting in God to stop that sword. Yeah. And to make that decision for him either way, that it is God's will, not his. Yeah. And what's beautiful then about the way that the play works is that It's got this first act, which is in verse, as you've been hearing us reading, and the second act, which is also in verse, but in the middle of it, is his sermon at Christmas about martyrdom. And so it's just this plain text sermon in the middle of these two verses, which is such a like an interesting format. I mean, when you think about it, is that not the best way to have a dramatic monologue in the middle of a play which is I also just suddenly thought how much this is like the mass in some ways yeah (laughs) you've got the like liturgy of the readings and the like thought bit and then the sermon and then the actual action of the sacrifice yeah that's beautiful I love that but yeah he gets to have this this dramatic monologue in the middle which actually totally makes sense because he is a priest giving a sermon 
So it says at the end, it is never the design of man for the true martyr is he who has become the instrument of God, who has lost his will in the will of God and who no longer desires anything for himself, not even the glory of being a martyr. Mm. I think that's what's so key is that it's not about our vanity and it's not even about whether it's useful. And I think that is a slightly different aspect of Thomas's approach to martyrdom, which is that not only is he thinking of his own glory, but there is a part of him that's sort of calculating that this will probably work in the church's favour because there would be such an outrage about my martyrdom. That like that sense of like the human desire to strategize and to control and to produce a useful outcome. Kind of like the kamikaze pilots. Yeah, almost. And that's not within the Christian thinking. That's not how we should approach this. That it's not about whether it would be good for the church if we were martyred. It, yeah, it's not about martyrdom being the most good that you can do Mm -hmm. but about whether it is what you are called to do by God yeah and rather given by God and because God's plans are so much bigger and more interesting and more intricate than ours will ever be the idea that our version of the plan would be God's version of the plan you know that's a mistake we all make so often (laughs) all the time (laughs) and so even if you're like letting go of your life enough to be used as a sort of bargaining chip for the church that even in that you have to be aware of that it's not up to you whether your martyrdom is useful or even remembered that like you don't know what god would do with that kind of grace and so i just think it's such an interesting analysis of of someone's mind and it's so in some ways very uplifting because obviously it ends with his martyrdom but there is that sense of him being able to properly order his thoughts and his desires to God before it happens and so enter into this martyrdom in a way that does give glory to God. Yeah, there is very much the sense in the second act that his way is clear and that he has dealt with these temptations and by surrendering to the will of God attained peace. Mm -hmm. In fact, he says, we are not here to triumph by fighting, by stratagem, or by resistance, not to fight with beasts as men. We have only to conquer now by suffering. This is the easier victory. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the line before that of um, the church shall be open even to our enemies, open the door. Just to go back to that point of him opening the door, that the recognition that it's open to the enemies is his recognition of what the church should be rather than his, oh, let them in, I want to die. He's respecting the base of the church, even though that ultimately leads to him being martyred within a church space, which is obviously such a sacrilege. It's it's such a really like insightful look at the ways that we, we think about our own role in the story of the of the Christian narrative, that we can almost be sort of too eager to claim for a name in the annals of of history in a way that is not about wanting to encounter God. In terms of what you just said about sacrilege Mm. in the church, there's a really interesting line of um, that there is holy ground and the sanctity shall not depart from it. Though armies trample over it, the sightseers come with guidebooks looking over it. From there the western seas gnaw at the coasts of Iona, to the depths in the desert, the prayer in forgotten places by the broken imperial column. From such ground springs that which forever renews the earth, though it is forever denied. 
Therefore, O God, we thank thee, who has given such blessing to Canterbury. Hmm. And that's such a powerful illustration of his death renewing the earth, and by showing that renewal of the earth, it's the blood of the martyrs of the feet of the church. Yeah. And that element of him also giving his life for his people that they might be called to greater holiness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think where where we'll go from there is the final lines of the play really kind of shift in focus to how how fear can actually restrict those so it moves to there's an amazing greek chorus throughout the play which is just such an interesting use of that chorus in a very different setting that you would normally expect because it's a chorus of old peasant women (laughs) (laughs) um but it says forgive us O lord we acknowledge ourselves as type of the common man, of the men and women who shut the door and sit by the fire, who fear the blessing of God, the loneliness of the night of God, the surrender required, the deprivation inflicted, who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God, who fear the hand at the window, the fire in the thatch, the fist in the tavern, the push into the canal, less than we fear the love of God. That's such a powerful line, and the idea that we so easily run from God mm-hmm. to men, yeah, and how weak a decision that is. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's not a good one. Don't do, don't do it if you can help it. And I think that really brings us to... The dialogue which centers on this figure of Blanche de la Force who is so paralyzed by fear that she tries to enter into a vocation on the basis that she's too afraid to live in the world and you know obviously there's a sense that she loves God and is trying to do his will but she does admit freely that she is just too paralyzed by fear to do anything else and she says I don't scorn the world but I don't know how to live in such a strange and disturbing place physically I can't bear the world's noise and agitation if my nerves were less strained you'd see what I'm capable of Mm, and there's that sense that her vocation is kind of her opting out and her wanting an easier path Yeah, and the Mother Superior really challenges her on that Mm -hmm. and questions in the search for a heroic life. Perhaps you search mistakenly for a certain way of living, one that makes it easy to be heroic, which places heroism in your hands. Yeah, and I think while this is more about the way that she approaches her vocation, I think it also applies to martyrdom in the sense that if we think of martyrdom as a single moment of courage, that it's like, all I have to do is grit my teeth for that one moment and then heroism is just given to me and it's fine. And a challenge to say that the heroic life is heroic because it isn't easy and that all Christian life is a heroic life. Yeah, there's also this really important sense that she shouldn't be entering the convent just for protection. The Mother Superior says, Our order is not a refuge. It does not protect us, my daughter. It is we who protect the order. Mm. And I think... That's so important for the decisions made later on, that they're not clinging to their habits in a way that forces them, like, forces the issue of martyrdom. Yeah. But that they are seeking to protect their way of life by their actions. It's. I think it also comes back to the fact that 
joining this cloistered convent. I think it's a little counterintuitive now because for most of us we think of that as being such a difficult decision rather than being the easy decision. So I recognise that this isn't necessarily the way that we think of it now, but that none of these things offer you a guarantee of an easy path to Christ. And that in the way that Thomas was thinking about strategy, that you can't just organise your life so that the options for virtue are given to you and the, the opportunities for vice are sort of taken away from you, you know? Yeah. It actually just reminds me of, um, I think, G.K. Chesterton's Francis of Assisi. He talks about this particular era mm -hmm. and the idea that the only way to become holy mm. was to become a monk or a nun and that they were kind of doing the holiness thing for everybody else. Yeah. And, yeah, it is very much the sense that it's not about seeking to retreat from the world's vices and that you'll be sheltered from everything, but that you are choosing a sacrifice if it's what God has called you to. Yeah. In the way that, like, I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, I think now people see marriage as a sort of easy option to get out of any issues that you have with chastity. And that's not the case either. Like, they would see, like, the vows of chastity of a religious order as being too difficult and too great a demand and so I'll enter into marriage but there is still demands of chastity placed on you within a marriage <laughs> and you still have to order your life and your virtues and your uh, reliance on God even within that space so I think yeah it, it, and I think it comes down to a question of control yeah and I think it's that careful ordering of your life to make sure that you don't ever have to face up to vice or fear or even she said Blanche says a lot the fear of fear yeah there is also though this really interesting element of her recognizing her weakness mm -hmm. and seeking God's mercy in that yeah that she says I renounce everything so that he may bestow his grace upon me yeah that that is like the counterbalancing force in her action mm -hmm. that while she is running from fear she is also a pious woman seeking to do the will of God yeah I think what strikes me is that it's such a complicated and difficult space to navigate for her and for us as well. Like when she goes to the bed of the mother superior, when the mother superior is dying, the, she's asked, what name does she want to take as a Carmelite? And she says, I want to be Blanche of the agony of Christ. And it's like, the question is put to her, like, are you ready to take on that burden? And the mother superior reveals that that was her name as well. And she says that um, those who enter Gethsemane never leave it. <laughs> and so in some ways there's like this balance between are you, are you cocky enough to take on the agonies of Christ? Which is then kind of reinforced by this awful death that the Mother Superior has, that this real sense of abandonment, that her life and her work has, you know, not given her the grace of a happy and peaceful death and instead she has this death of torment and fear and doubt and uh, like I've been saying that you can't do anything to guarantee yourself grace yeah I will clarify it's not the kind of death that implies that she's gone to hell no no it's not like a evil death in that way mm. it is like she has received the last sacraments she is prepared to die but that her last moments of agony are mm. are agony not peace she just has this this moment of calling out to god much as christ does like my god my god why why have you abandoned me yeah that 
her experience of her last moments on earth are not ones of peace and serenity and joy yeah that she does enter into that agony and it stays with her to the very end and as me and phoebe were discussing this we were saying i'm not really sure whether the idea that you could die for someone else or like take on somebody else's pain as you're dying I'm not sure what the actual teaching around that might be. Um, it's, we didn't look it up. We didn't look it up. It's definitely something that's just discussed in the opera and not necessarily something that we're saying is like doctrine of the church. Um, but I think it is really interesting that all things we can offer up for Christ and that we can even offer up the pain of a bad death in a way that might smoothen the way for other people. Like, I just think it's so interesting that Blanche then becomes emboldened through the less obviously martyr-like death of the Mother Superior. Yeah, and there's a sense that in a way the Mother Superior has renounced her glory to Blanche. Yeah. And there's also just a beautiful element in this whole story of the role of the Mother Superior in guiding the nuns in the convent as her children and taking responsibility for their souls mm-hmm. and seeking greater glory for them. Yeah. It's just really beautiful. It is. I think is what we're going to read out next. Yeah, I think so. I think we're, we're going to talk a little bit about this vow to martyrdom and this group decision to commit to the idea that you will be martyred. Again, we haven't looked into the theology of that. <laughs> Yeah, as in, I think that will be kind of our final point, which is that it's such a complicated, both texts are really complicated in, in, in the circumstances of these martyrdoms. But yeah, I think even these nuns are overly tempted towards martyrdom. There's a line in it which says, and the, the new mother superior says, let us distrust everything that might turn us away from prayer. Let us also distrust martyrdom. Prayer is a duty. Martyrdom is a reward. That's so powerful. So when they take this vow, it's like almost like they've signed themselves up for something that maybe they shouldn't have. But now that they've taken the vow, there's that sense that they owe it to God to keep to it. And so I think that's why it's so beautiful when the Mother Superior, who is so against this the whole way through, then says, My daughters, in my absence, you took a vow of martyrdom, whether it was wise or not. God would not want such a generous act to trouble your conscience. Well, I also take the vow. From now on, I shall be bound to it, and I shall be the only judge of how it is fulfilled. I take up the burden, and I leave you the glory, since I did not initiate it myself. Do not trouble yourselves about it any more. I have always been ready to answer for you in this world. And today I have no desire to avoid whatever may come. God chooses or sets aside as he pleases. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, A, that like stepping up to the responsibility, but also that final line which echoes what we're saying of St. Thomas Beckett, which is God chooses or sets aside as he pleases. Yeah. And that it isn't always obvious to us which God has deemed the more valuable in that moment to die for him or to live and serve on his behalf. Because you were saying that you wanted to talk about the character of the priest in this opera. Yeah, so with the whole revolution and and them forcing the nuns to go back as lay people, they're also obviously persecuting the priests. And just before the soldiers come to the nuns, the priest comes to the nuns and says that he's had to set aside his Catholic and will be going into hiding. And there is, again, for the priest, a sense there that he could hold on to his Catholic and be martyred for it. 
and achieve the glory that way. Mm-hmm. But he is instead choosing to go into hiding and to seek the good that can still be done in this life, mm-hmm. which in the final act of the play, when the nuns are being martyred, there's this beautiful moment where their spiritual father is in the crowd, like at the front, tucked behind the soldiers, blessing each one of them as they go up to their death. Yeah. And that is the good that he can do for them. Mm-hmm. And he's not doing it in such a f- massively obvious way that he's also going to be grabbed and killed. Mm-hmm. But he is also taking that risk that if one of the guards noticed, he would be hauled in there and killed. Yeah. So it's really walking that line between doing the will of God as you see it, and while still not seeking martyrdom for its own sake. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we came across a quote from some of the early fathers of the church who told their more kind of zealous parishioners, do not go to the officers of the law and denounce yourself as Christians. There is this sense that there is obviously a balance to be had, which is to not deny Christ as St. Peter does, but also to not openly fling yourselves upon swords that you don't need to do. Yeah, like when we're talking about the nuns putting aside their habits or the priest putting aside his Catholic, neither of them are being forced to renounce their vows in an immoral way. Yeah. It's not like the virgin martyrs being threatened with marriage when they've made a vow to God. Yeah. It's more to do with setting aside the trappings. Yeah. Which are still important. We love a nun in habit. Yeah. But the... There's a sense of what's worth dying for. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they're not being asked to commit sacrilege either. They're yeah. not being asked to stamp on the face of Christ. So there is that line of where you can go and hide, and that's what you're being called to do, and where you need to stand firm and renounce. Yeah, and I think that takes a huge amount of prayer that allows us to be in such a space to make those decisions. And then I think it's really interesting, as I mentioned in my summary, the one mother of the group who was the one who instigated this whole vow and was very determined to do it she misses out on the chance to be martyred and she has to accept that this wasn't her calling and that she has been left behind and in being left behind she is being called to service and I think that can be a real inspiration for our own lives in the ways that we approach the martyrdom of our lives. There's this beautiful poem by Venerable Madeleine Delbrel, which says, Our passion, sure we are waiting for it. We know it must come, of course. We intend to live it with a certain grandeur. We are waiting for the bell to ring that will inform us that the time has come for us to sacrifice ourselves, like a log in the fireplace. We know that we have to be consumed. Like Like a piece of wool cut with scissors, we have to be separated. Like young animals that are sent to slaughter, we have to be destroyed. We are waiting for our passion, but it does not come. In its place, there come small patiences. Patiences, those small pieces of the passion whose job it is to kill us gently for your glory, to kill us without our getting the glory. From dawn they come to greet us, our nerves either too much on edge or too numb. It is our disgust with our daily ration of life and the neurotic desire for all that is not ours. This is the way our patience has come, in serried ranks or single file, and they always for to remind us of the fact that they are the martyrdom for which we are preparing. And scornfully we let them pass by as we wait for a cause that would be worth dying for. 
If every redemption is a martyrdom, not every martyrdom involves the spilling of blood. From the beginning of our lives to the very end, one by one, the grapes may be picked from the bunch. This is the passion of patience. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's such a stark reminder of how it is also in service as well as in death that we are called to witness to Christ. Yeah, I love that line of to kill us gently for your glory, to kill us without getting the glory. Mm. Our nerves either too much on edge or too numb. It's always the way. Yeah. I think there's a real C.S. Lewis sense in there. I feel like there's a reference to the screw tape letters. But yeah, I just love that that poem because it, it really accuses us of waiting for the big moment and not preparing for it by serving in the small moments. Definitely. And I think then maybe just to round up what we've been talking about, we're just going to talk a little bit about both of them together, which I don't know if you've noticed, both of these texts are quite complicated and the motives for the martyrdom and the motives for various actions and decisions, they're not clear cut. They're not like say yes to God or no. It's often a choice between what looks at at the very least what looks like two goods and in some ways are often actually two goods. Yeah, there is a sense that holding on to our lives like life is a good that mm-hmm. we are given. Yeah. And we're not supposed to give it up wantonly. But that we can't live our lives in a way that we are too afraid to give up our lives. Exactly. Um, Chesterton. Chesterton has a great um we've talked about this in the chivalry episode, which was I think about two years ago now, which is slightly frightening. But he says, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life the same shall save it. Is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes, it is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. <laughs> A soldier, surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. That's wonderful. (laughs) It's definitely that sense that... There is a greater good to be attained, mm-hmm. and the greater good must be sought. Yeah, in seek in serving Christ through life or death. Yeah, but that we should also have a preference for life in so far as we can, mm-hmm. because life is what God has given us in this world, and we seek to do the good that we are called to do by Him mm-hmm. until He wills our death. I think that's it. really what is at the core of this. And I think it's why it goes into what we were saying at the start about that oversimplification. Because I think at the core of it, it suggests that martyrdom is one moment. And that, like I said, all you have to do is grit your teeth for that one moment. But Grit your teeth and bear it. <laughs> but really, it, what it is, is it's that line from the dialogue which says that you want a life where the heroic life is made easy for you. And... In none of these cases is the heroic life made easy for them, not only because they're experiencing persecution, which is difficult, but the decisions within that persecution are not blatantly obvious about which is the one that God wills more. Definitely. And there is just such a strong sense of the moral discernment needed. And that comes from a life of prayer and a life of having been willing to make those sacrifices Mm -hmm. so that you're not afraid to make the ultimate sacrifice. Because the advantage both that the Mother Superior has and that St. Thomas Beckett has, that 
Blanche struggles with is that neither are afraid to lay down their lives. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to grapple with the question of whether they're... The fear isn't the question in there. Mm-hmm. The question is what the right thing to do is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that also there are always other plenty of temptations to, <laughs> too. to overcome in life, not just fear. Yeah, St. Thomas faces three other temptations before he gets to the, mart- the glory of martyrdom one. And so. he, does say, he, he says the last one is the worst, yeah. but it also is not the case that the other three are not temptations. Mm-hmm. Um, he does have to overcome all four of them. Yeah. yeah, and I think the reason why he can overcome them more easily as well is that they are the temptations that he has been used to facing. Yeah. That they refer back to decisions he made in his earlier life, like before he was the Archbishop and when he was a Chancellor, and living a much more worldly life, mm-hmm. in a way. And so they refer back to decisions he had made before, rather than this particular challenge of doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that is the conclusion of our episode. I hope it was easy enough to follow. Um, I hope it was interesting. Like we said, it, it it's quite a nuanced topic and not one that sort of automatically comes up when you think of like Catholic discussions. It's like I, I joked about <laughs> the idea of this episode being titled Martyrdom, the easy option out, <laughs> which I think is maybe a little too flippant in the yeah. face of the reality of martyrs, but I think is a, an important distinction to make in our lives to remind ourselves at the very core, to make sure that, first of all, that we are doing the right thing, but even when we are doing the right thing, to make sure we're doing it for the right reasons. And the right reason is always out of love of God. Yeah. And also to not let those things paralyze us. Yeah. And so hopefully that's some fodder for Lenten reflections. (laughs) We are thinking of you all, and we hope you have a very prayerful and fulfilling Lent. We will obviously be back during Lent, but given that we're recording this relatively at the start, um, it's just a good time to wish you all a very fruitful Lent, which is... Better word than happy. A happy Lent. Fruitful still feels a little contradiction in terms in that it's going into the desert. (laughs) You go into the desert and then you find it's full of fruit. But anyway. And we also would say to remember some of the martyrs and... Mm -hmm look up some of their stories. They're great. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll be posting some of them on the Instagram. So yeah, I mean, if you want to reach out and tell us your favourite martyrs, especially maybe some of the ones that don't get as, uh, who don't get as much glory in our discussion of martyrs. (laughs) Um, And then other than that, I think the only thing left that we have to say is, what are you enjoying at the moment? So Phoebe, do you want to go? Yeah, I had a panic like 10 minutes ago that this question was coming up and I hadn't thought of an answer. (laughs) Um, One of the things I did really enjoy at the moment was the last episode of Risky Enchantment that I wasn't on. (laughs) I don't listen to the ones that I'm on, which was the one that you did with Shane on a pilgrimage in paintings. And it's really inspired me to go back and look through all of those paintings of of his that he's put together. And to maybe do that as part of Lent. Yeah, that's great. You know, we did that for Advent, but Advent and Lent are 
So Advent was too chaotic. <laughs> Advent, and, you know, they're kind of sister seasons exactly. in a way. So, yeah, I think it would be lovely to go back and look at those Tissot paintings and especially that journey throughout the passion. Well, thank you for the thing that you're enjoying, being Risking Enchantment. That feels a little bit like nepotism, but we'll let it go. I will go with something that we've both been enjoying, which is a very silly and funny and not at all serious after recording a very serious podcast episode, which is a UK comedy series called Taskmaster, which is, um, it's been going for quite a few years now, but I've only recently gotten into it. But it essentially revolves around a a group of comedians being set various silly tasks that they have to find sort of inventive or unusual ways of completing. All of the tasks are kind of off the wall or a little bit odd. It's genuinely hilarious. And yeah, you just get to follow them as they compete to to win in these various silly tasks. And um, as far as I know, if you're in a country in which it's being broadcast, such as the UK, you can watch it on the all four demand, which is free. And if you're in a country where it isn't broadcast, it's even easier. It's just free on YouTube. So thankfully, it's not broadcast here. Yeah, so we just get to watch it on YouTube. So but as far as I know, it, it is fairly readily accessible online and largely for free. So I would really recommend it if when you're taking a break from your Lenten reflections and want to have a laugh or have a little bit of escapism, um, I would really recommend Taskmaster. It's been keeping us laughing throughout the last couple of weeks. So I think that's it. And we will talk to you again in another two weeks, please God. And thank you so much for listening. And as always, like we said at the start, reach out, let us know how you're finding the episodes and keep well and God bless. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.